this year's space budget is three times what it was in January 1961. And it is greater than the space budget of the previous eight years combined. That budget now stands at $5,400,000,000 a year. A staggering sum, though somewhat less than we paid for cigarettes and cigars. Welcome to the 19th edition of Iconocast, the world's greatest science advocacy podcast. I'm Greg Layden, and my co-host Mike Halberg is on assignment in Arizona today. Today we begin a series of interviews with science-connected people running for office as part of the largest ever influx of new candidates since the beginning of the Republic. Republican Stephen Knight has represented California's 25th Congressional District since, since 2014. Congressman Knight faced a strong challenge from Democrat Brian Caforio in 2016, and the race is considered a real toss-up this year. Knight is a longtime politician, having held a series of seats in the California legislature and municipal office. He is a run-of-the-mill conservative by modern standards, which means pretty much that he aligns with Tea Party values. He has a C rating from normal, though he favors medical marijuana. He likes the Confederate flag and supports Trump's refusal to supply copies of his tax forms. Knight opposes regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, and the League of Conservation Voters has given him a lifetime score of zero. He has voted against LGBT rights, wants to privatize Social Security, and is fairly iffy on all the other issues as well. We are not interviewing Congressman Knight today. Instead, we are speaking with volcanologist, scientist, Jess Phoenix. She's running against Knight, and I'm sure I'm missing an excellent pun here, and she's an expert on volcanoes with an advanced degree from the California State University, Los Angeles. She has studied active volcanoes in North America, South America, Asia, and Australia, and has worked on environmental impacts of mining. Jess Phoenix has a TED Talk that we'll put on our website. Jess, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your district. I am running in California's 25th Congressional District, which is the northern part of L.A. County, and it includes a little bit of Ventura County as well, um, the eastern part of Ventura. The cities that are included are Simi Valley, Santa Clarita, and then Lancaster and Palmdale, and then, of course, smaller cities around those major ones. This is, you know, it's the U.S. Congress, so it's a federal race, but of course, all politics is local, so we have a lot of uh, important local issues that actually have implications on the national scale. I'm calling from Minnesota. We have our own very unique special system here of elected candidates. But I don't think anyone has a system you have in California. Yeah. So we have what's called a jungle primary system. And that means uh, that it's the top two finishers in the primary from any party. Um, you don't have to be uh, the Republicans aren't separated into their own primary. The Democrats aren't separated into theirs. It's just everybody free for all, um, you know, Green Party, uh, Libertarians, Independents. They're all in the same mix. Can you, uh, there's a group here in Minnesota trying to get us to do that. Can you tell us why we should or shouldn't? <laughs> um, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, I haven't necessarily seen hard data on whether or not it improves anything about the electoral process. I think that you run the risk of having um you know, representation or choices in your representation from people only in one party. You know, like if you have two Democrats, which happens a lot in California, uh, or two Republicans, which happens in more conservative districts in California. So you don't necessarily end up getting a diversity of people to choose from because it's predicated heavily on um, primary turnout to vote. So if you don't have high enough primary turnout, the only chance a lot of people have to vote is in the general election. 
and uh, they they only then get the candidate uh, from the single party that may be dominating that field. So I think that there's there are some issues with it. I know what they're trying to do with it, but I'm not sure that it's fully realized. I'm not going to ask you to characterize too much the details of your race because I know that you plan on winning. And that's uh-huh. all, that's all you're going to tell me. <laughs> Even though you're a scientist, you're going to, you know, stick with this one belief. I hope I hope you do. But you're you're running against an incumbent Republican. Yes, yes, yes. Steve Knight is the incumbent. <laughs> but how is your district in relation to science? Do you have a lot of science stuff? Do you have a lot of science companies and universities and sciencey people right in your district right there? We don't have a major four-year institution like a Cal State University or a UC or, and the um, the four-year institutions that we do have are not focused on science at all. Uh, we have the Cal Arts Institute, which is a very good arts institute, but it is not uh, not focused on science. Uh, we also have the Master's University, which is actually a religious school. Um, so we don't have a four-year degree-granting institution. We have some satellite programs um, from the UCs uh, that actually, um, they exist in Palmdale, but it's not the same as having a four-year institution. So one of my big uh, actual um, things that I'm promoting in with my candidacy is advocating for a four-year institution in our district. Uh, we do have a very long history of aerospace design and manufacturing here. Uh, we are right next to Edwards Air Force Base, which is also home to NASA's Armstrong Flight Center. And a lot of the people, in fact, about uh, over two-thirds of the folks that work uh, on the base and work for NASA there uh, live in our district. So there is a, there's, there's a lot of knowledge here, and we're seeing um, an increase in uh, the biotech companies as well. We have a lot of um, biotech groups in uh, the Santa Clarita Valley, and that's a growing industry as well. And then, of course, in, in Simi Valley, we, we do see a lot of people in the aerospace industry, uh, sort of holdovers from before, but then newer environmental firms uh, cropping up. So having a four-year institution will take the district in the direction that I think we need to be going, which is creating uh, you know people who have skills in 21st century knowledge sets like green technology, uh, research and development, and in uh, cybersecurity. So that's what I would like to have an, an institution here that would focus on green tech and cyber. We need that. And people in our community are really excited when you start talking about it because you know, we're not just uh, the forgotten neighbors of Los Angeles. We are actually a really, really dynamic and skilled population out here. And so we need to have those jobs of the future. What, what other key uh, platform planks make up your approach? Well, uh, I really do want to be somebody who goes to Washington and brings back federal dollars to invest in the community for for green tech, et cetera. Uh, so that is one skill that I would be bringing with me that uh, nobody else in the race can claim, which is understanding uh, at a real detailed level how the federal grant making process works, thanks to working in science. And then also, I think we have such a unique opportunity here uh, in this race because uh, Steve Knight is not trained at all in science, not whatsoever. Uh, and he sits on the House Science Committee. Uh, When Congressman Jerry McNerney, who's a mathematician uh, and has worked in engineering, uh, when he called me up to endorse my campaign, he let me know that the reason, one of the reasons he's so excited about my candidacy is that I am, you know, a ringer for the science committee uh, there. And he says, that's a way that you can get in and make it a difference. He said, we need you on that committee. And that's actually very unique as well. Um, You know, the vast majority of Congress is lawyers and business people. Uh, You've got 80% of those, uh, 80% of the people in Congress right now have that background. 
there's only one actual scientist who's a physicist. That's Bill Foster in Illinois. Uh, and then you've got McNerney, who has his mathematics background in engineering. But you don't have anybody represented from the earth sciences, environmental sciences, anything like that, uh, particularly no field science backgrounds uh, in Congress. So that's what I bring to the table that's very different. And so if I can get in there as a freshman and join a committee where I have direct expertise, that puts me ahead of the curve. No, no other person running in our race can say, look, I can go in, uh, replace Steve Knight and actually start making an impact. Usually, you know, the freshman Congress people can't get a lot done. So I think we have a real chance to make a difference here. The Iconicast podcast actually started with an interview with uh, Sean Otto, who wrote the book of War on Science. In that book, he mentions, you know, he counted a number of scientists in Congress, but and he came up with five. This was a couple of Congresses back. And there, there was mm-hmm. 1.5, and I think that included that you had to get to get that count of five. I think you had to include medical professionals. I, I was at a, I was at an event a while back, and it, a bunch of people. It was a, mostly literary, a literary awards event, and mm-hmm. I was sitting at the table of maybe 11 people having dinner beforehand, and we we're talking about science. And I just did a poll. I said, "How many people here are?" either currently a scientist, was at one time in your life a scientist, has an advanced degree in science, or was a science teacher. And of the 11 people at the table, there's a single person who did not answer yes to any of those questions. He was a business investment guy. Everybody else was a former science teacher, current science teacher, actual scientist, science writer, something about science. Then you go to Congress and you ask a question like that, and almost no one has any direct connection with science or even engineering or and very few in medicine at all. How is it that Congress conducts science policy without any scientists present? They are supposed to rely very heavily on expertise that they get from actual scientists. Uh, and you're supposed to have administrators at organizations like the EPA or NASA who are well-versed in science, you know, who understand the science that is being done by their organizations and the current state of the different fields that their organizations work in. Uh, right now, we don't have that. And so that's what's really troubling to me is that you have people like Lamar Smith on the House Science Committee who are outright climate science deniers. And when I know full well that they they know that climate change is a reality that we are experiencing, but they are beholden to the uh, the fossil fuel industry and their lobbyists. So they're not, they, they will continue to deny science publicly while taking checks in private from people who have a vested interest in not making the move to green and sustainable solutions. You know, the whole system is warped because they're not looking at things objectively. They're not using facts and evidence uh, and the best available data to make decisions. So I think that scientists are uniquely positioned to use the skill set that we have, that we've acquired through our scientific training to help legislate in really good, really productive ways that we're just not seeing right now. I mean, we're seeing people like Steve Knight to make decisions uh, that are at best their window dressing to say, oh, look, I did something for science. And at worst, they're just outright ignoring uh, what real scientists are bringing to the table. We're having an interesting governor's race in Minnesota right now. And one of the big issues on the table is the approval or not of copper sulfide 
and nickel mining in a, a relatively wild natural area that called the Boundary Waters, which is up in northern Minnesota. All, all of the candidates within the Democratic Party, all the Republicans will sign on, just say yes, because it's mining and hell, mining ruins everything, so why not just do it? But the Democrats are fighting over it. And one candidate that I happen, happens to be my preferred candidate, Rebecca Otto, is asking for a lot more care going into that for various reasons that I agree with. But all of the other ones have the same exact statement, which is, let the science decide. There is a, an environmental impact process, and that involves scientists, and they will decide whether or not we can go forward with this. But the falsehood there, and I have been in the environmental impact statement writing field for a long time, is that the environmental impact st- uh, a review process doesn't ever, almost ever, stop a project. What it does is it makes sure that the effects of the project are minimized to the extent that it can be. Right. And, and, that, and that's a scientific process. But it, 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 there's no point at which science as a wise, as a force of wisdom comes in and says yes or no on a project. That yes or no is always done by politicians and administrators and so on. The scientists simply tell you what's going to go wrong and how yes. to minimize that. It, it speaks to this conditioning that we've had as scientists in the modern era. For 64 years now, since Robert Oppenheimer was persecuted for voicing his concerns about potential uses of of nuclear technology, uh, and then he had his security clearance revoked, scientists have just said, I am staying out of politics. I am not going to give my opinion on anything, even after looking at all the facts. Uh, They just say, I'm just going to give you the hard data. And the problem with that is that science is inherently political because the vast majority of scientific funding comes from the federal government. So if we want to continue to see science prioritized by the government, scientists need to speak up and say, this is the data, you know, here's what the data are showing us, but this is the action we need to take. And here's why. And it's taking that extra step of of connecting the dots um, that we're not doing because we've been so afraid and hamstrung by this notion that science itself is apolitical, when in reality, it's the scientific method that is not political. That is objective. But science and the way it can be manipulated or twisted, um, you know, we have to be on guard for that. And we have to make sure that as scientists, we are good stewards of the work that we're doing and that we are advocating for policies that will help back what we've seen from the science and will help actually support our larger social objectives. Right. Actually, going back to Schrodinger's book again, what he he says there is that science is always political, but it should never be partisan. But science is so deeply involved, science and engineering is so deeply involved with so many of our decisions. Our main issues today are climate change. We could look at a more immediate issue of cybersecurity, uh, we have other environmental issues. We have other energy-related issues. It's all so much integrated with science that it's it's just a, it's just. As you mentioned before, and I think you're probably. I I could hear I couldn't hear any cynicism in your voice, but I could feel it in a sense that you know you're supposed to have people running agencies that are legitimate scientists who can advise, and inform, Congress yes. and and the executive. And it just that has just all been removed by it. But that is actually a problem we have, isn't it? That we have in our society, in our government, so many things that are done by tradition because they make sense. Yes. And and they're always done, been done that way. And every now and then you change the way you do it, but mostly you keep with those traditions because they work. And one of those traditions is putting scientists in science jobs. 
<laughs> the Constitution, the, the Jefferson might have said some smart stuff about an informed population, but they didn't put in the Constitution a rule that a job that has a certain function should be filled by a functionary of that uh, of that activity. Right. There's no law that says a scientist must go in a science job because who would ever make such a stupid law? It's yeah. completely obvious. Yet the Trump administration has replaced all of the top scientists, most of them. All of the ones that they know about have been replaced. There's plenty I think they don't know. I don't think that, that they, the White House has any idea how many scientists there are in the government and they would probably freak out. Can you tell us, other than having a, uh, other than being very logical and having a very strange handshake, what do volcanologists do? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I actually, the work that I do um, is, my, my favorite stuff to do, I should say, is uh, monitoring active volcanoes. But volcanology actually spans everything from uh, lab work. Uh, there's a lot of folks who do um, volcanology work in labs, trying to predict eruptions, model lava flows, um, you know, just understand the eruptive processes better. You also have people who study historic eruptions um, and go out and collect ash samples from um, you know, distant locales uh, that are, you know, sometimes even thousands of miles from the source of the eruption uh, to understand how volcanoes have erupted historically, because there are, there's so many that we still don't even know about. Uh, and we're still learning about. It's, uh, it's a very young science, relatively speaking. Uh, and, you know, my favorite stuff to do, of course, is monitoring active volcanoes. In the United States, we have several volcano observatories dedicated to just that, because we have such a high number of active volcanoes. In fact, we are uh, the third highest in the world uh, at the moment, and a lot of people are very surprised by that. But uh, that's because California, Oregon, Washington, um, Wyoming, uh, and then Alaska and Hawaii uh, all have active volcanoes. And there's a few other smaller ones in different areas as too. But, uh, you know, volcanology is, it's very much like seismology in that it is a science that is ultimately dedicated to keeping people safe. And, um, you know, every country has its own uh, volcano observatory or monitoring agency if they have active volcanoes near population centers. Um, and it's a, such a young science because it really became modernized um, with the eruptions of Mount or the eruption of Mount St. Helens in the 80s. That was sort of uh, the dawning of the era of modern volcanology because we were able to observe an eruption that affected people in real time. And we actually had scientists there uh, prior to the eruption documenting the changing conditions on the volcano. So we sample gas, we sample flowing lava, um, we sample um, preserved minerals that are in lava that's cooled. Uh, we we monitor deformation. So if the volcano's magma chamber is inflating or deflating, it actually, um, basically if it's filling up with uh, magma or if it's draining, you can actually see that in changes in the ground surface. Uh, we use satellites to monitor really small movements. Uh, we measure the gravity around magma chambers to see, um, you know, to try to locate them. And uh, there's just, there's a, there's so many ways that we are using now that are even, that are new and to, uh, to help us understand volcanoes. One of those is uh, volcanic infrasound. So we've been measuring we're basically recording the sound that volcanoes make, and some of it is below the range of human hearing. So like bats, you know, things are in the sonar range that's higher than human hearing. Uh, volcanoes make noises that are lower. So we can record those and then adjust the levels so that we can hear them. And that is actually helping us to understand more about how eruptions work. So the ultimate goal is to predict eruptions, but we are not there yet. So that's sort of what volcanologists are doing is saying, how can we predict eruptions? Um, what, what more information? 
information can we get to get us closer to being able to do that? Because we want to save lives. I imagine uh, another another interesting area of development of volcanology of the future might be figuring out how to get energy out of volcanoes. <laughs> yes, uh, you know we do have geothermal um, technology right now. In fact, there uh, there are geothermal energy sources that are being tapped um, in Hawaii, even uh, that are related to Kilauea volcano, which is the world's most active volcano. And uh, geothermal energy is something that we see a lot of potential for. But of course, it's how do you, again, uh, harness that energy and extract the resource without damaging uh, the surrounding area or people who live nearby or, you know, harming wildlife, uh, plant populations? So, of course, there's there's the challenges that you see with a lot of uh, energy energy collection uh, that we try to do. But I think geothermal is is interesting because to me, just because it is associated with volcanism, whether that's on the surface or whether it's still underground, you know, they have, uh, you know, different areas. In fact, the Western United States, there's, there's a lot of hot springs and those hot springs are all made hot by geothermal activity. So whenever people go out to, you know, Colorado, uh, there's a, you know, there's hot springs at a few different places there or in California, Nevada. I always tell them, hey, you know, that's that's volcanism at work. <laughs> it's just deeper. Yeah. You can't see it. I find it interesting that you, you mentioned that the the, the uh, coming of age and the fruition of volcanology as a science was associated with Mount St. Helens. But it's also true that that was a relatively minor volcan- volcanic explosion compared to some others that have happened well within recent human history, including volcanoes that changed climate for years and that had huge effects and killed tens of thousands of people in Indonesia and so on. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and, and that and that Western science knows about, always knew about, knew about from the moment it happened because they saw it happen. What is it about society and government and culture that causes us to do that? There should have been serious attention to volcanoes already. Well, we are really good at ignoring things that aren't uh, in front of us at the moment. And um, my mom actually is a terrorism expert. She was in the FBI and she would always say that, you know, no one wants to invest in preparedness. And that's because it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. And it's sort of the attitude that people always ascribe to teenagers, which is they think they're immortal and nothing can hurt them. And, you know, they'll they'll be fine. That's why they could drive the car 90 miles an hour and it'll be fine. And um, we sort of have that mentality as humans where unless we are threatened by something that we can see staring us in the face, we don't like to uh, make plans for it. So it is really a challenge uh, to get governments to invest in in different natural hazards um, work, research and uh, preparedness. So a good example of that, I, I got really mad and actually yelled at the TV several years back when Bobby Jindal was the governor of Louisiana. And yeah, he made a statement uh, when the federal budget came out and he said, what is this in the budget for volcano monitoring? What is that? We don't need that. You know, and I went, I was, I was screaming at the TV going, are you kidding me? You know, we have, we have hundreds of thousands of people who live near active volcanoes in the United States. Oh my God. You know, and it's just that people think, you know, okay, he doesn't have any volcanoes in Louisiana. So why should we fund any sort of research for it? And that same sort of mentality, you could apply that to Louisiana, right? If you live in Nevada, what do you care about hurricane monitoring, you know, well, what do you care? Right. And uh, so it's, but you have to care because, you know, we have this big expansive country where we have a variety of natural hazards in any given locale. So we as scientists, again, this is a job we have to do. We have to get really good at communicating to the public why, you know what, Um, bird flu is not a big problem right now, but 
you remember a few years ago it was, and there are new strains of flu coming out all the time. So we need to continue investing in making sure people are vaccinated for different flus, making sure we're investing into research in the more exotic flus and, uh, you know, and, and keeping the public informed about what they can do to prevent catching any sort of illness. But people don't, you know, like, oh, I'm not sick now. I'll be fine. This is one of the key roles of government is to actually do this kind of thing to kind of, in a sense, not to be too paternalistic about it, but uh, to think for us in areas where we just are not good at doing it. I, I was reading about the arc storm phenomenon recently, which is a, 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 uh, a basically a series of Pineapple Express events that happen starting in the wintertime. So you build up some snowpack that ends up flooding the interior valleys of California. Also, actually, the arc storms, that the one storm that we know about that happened flooded from uh, southwestern Canada down through Mexico. Everything in between. It was the worst flood ever seen. And it is known by the government of California that an arc storm would be about 300% more, 200% more costly than the big one, as far as you know, the, the big earthquake that happens in in where you are. Right, you know, the, the right. worst, the worst case scenario of earthquake. It's about would be three bad. times, I think. I think it was like 700 yeah. plus billion dollars, which is like yeah, three times more or so than than a big earthquake. Right. And the thing is, if you go around California, for the most part, as I understand it. All those rivers you see that are proper that are that are lined with with riprap and all those drainage systems are basically designed for the arc storm. Yeah, now, right. It, it might not be. They might not have everything they want. It might not be perfectly done. But the government, at one point, sat down and said, "We have to get ready for this storm, just like we have to get ready for the big earthquake." I mean, you guys have all these buildings that are ready for the earthquake. Um, a, a similar parallel problem is the big earthquake that will happen about once every 500 years in the northwest coast. You're probably very familiar with that oh, phenomenon. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and apparently, we're not ready for that one. That is one that's a little bit too hard to get people to, you know, no, you actually can't build Seattle there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's The Cascadia subduction zone is very, very dangerous. And, yeah, but people are going to do what people are going to do. I mean, look how many people live on... Uh, in coastal areas. <laughs> sure. But, but the point is that, that government actually can be the the agency for preparedness for this sort of thing and for handling this kind of thing in advance and can do this kind of long-term thinking if it has well-built scientific institutions as part of it. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I was actually, I've been concerned about some of the decisions made post-Katrina with regard to New Orleans. Um, you know, I think that is, that's something where we really need to have people taking a long look at, uh, you know, what we can do to either change the way that people in the area are living or, you know, prepare better for next time. And, you know, I, I see the same challenges in Southern California where, you know, we're riddled with faults. Uh, <laughs> we love our faults here. Um, and, you know, other areas, I mean, we, we keep rebuilding towns that get decimated by tornadoes. I mean, this is this is what we do. We have this sort of machismo culturally where we say, oh, we're going to rebuild. Uh, and sometimes, I think in the future, because we, we're having such a growing population and we have challenges on, on affordable housing already, um, we have to look really hard at what are we going to do in the future? Is it always going to be rebuild it? Or in some instances, will it be let's relocate? And I know towns in Florida are having to face this now with uh, sea levels. And a lot of people are saying, no, we're going to stay no matter what. But then the sea level is already encroaching. And soon they're going to be isolated. And that's when they're going to want to move. But it's like, you guys could have moved sooner. Um, what role does a government have in saying, hey, we're not going to support you if, you know, not just if, but when disaster actually strikes next time, unless you help us 
get you prepared in advance. You know, it's like, what, where does government's duty begin and end? And, you know, at what point can the government say, look, we just can't help because you refuse to, uh, you know, mitigate your losses. So does your uh, current representative in Congress have town halls? <laughs> uh, I believe he had one last year. Um, he has locked his door when I have personally gone to visit him. Uh, his staff has locked the door. Uh, and they do this to a lot of folks who they know are Democrats. So we we don't get to see much of him, um, particularly not in a formal setting. And he, he's hiding behind tele-town halls, you know, where they call people in the district on the phone and they say, oh, if you want to ask a question, push this button and then, you know, maybe we'll get to you. Um, but yeah, he often doesn't take a lot of the difficult questions. And yeah, so he's just not representing us. <laughs> you, you may want to, you or your campaign staff may want to look at the uh, indivisible movement in uh, Minnesota 3rd Congressional District. We have, I think we have here the most inaccessible Republican member of Congress in the country. Oh, who's that? Eric Paulson. Oh, I've heard his name. That's probably why. <laughs> that's probably why, because that's the only reason you would have heard his name is for that. And uh, yeah, he had one town hall uh, 12 years ago or something. Uh, he has stated that he will never have a town hall because he doesn't want that kind of chaos. Wow. So this place has exploded here. And it, it's the, uh, the kinds of actions that are happening are... So we have a, you know, a, a, one group has a, has a, a big cut out, cardboard cut out. This is all stuff you can't do as a candidate, <laughs> but um, you know, a cardboard cut out of Representative Paulson that, that we carry around. So when there's a meeting, he's there, you know, but it, you might just look at the, at, at, at the kind of activism that's happening in, in Minnesota third district, because this is, I think okay. that the number one case in the country of a representative who has the two characteristics that we see in so many Republicans these days. And that is, I represent the people who voted for me and no, I will not talk to you. Which is just unreal. I mean, that's completely opposite of the job that a representative is supposed to do. Um, and that's something, I mean, I've been emphasizing in my campaign that um, that I want to listen and I want to learn from people in our community. And I mean, I've gone to places in the district where they've never had a representative or a candidate uh, even show up. Uh, there's there's a city called Lake Los Angeles. It's way out in the eastern part of our district. It's um, a lot more rural and uh, a lot lower income than some of the areas in our district, um, like Santa Clarita. And in Lake Los Angeles, you know, I've been out there in people's homes. Um, you know, we do these little uh, things where we have coffee and we talk and uh, and people have said, I never thought someone running for Congress would come out here. Uh, and to me, that's just sad because if you want to represent everybody and even, you know, we have a big district and, you know, some of these districts are really nice and compact because they're all population based and some of them are sprawling like ours. And yeah, I mean, it takes a good two hours to get from one end to the other, but some days that's what you have to do. And I think that if we have representatives who are not doing the job that's in that job title, they're not representing anybody, but they're big donors, then they're doing the whole country a disservice, not just the people who they're supposed to be representing. Yeah, that's what Dean Phillips, who is running against uh, Eric Paulson, he got the endorsement by the party just uh, last week. Is doing as well. He's going to every house, every every neighborhood, every part of the district at all. We're we're not quite as spread out as you are, I don't think. But it's it's not two hours to go from one end to the other, but it's probably a forty minute drive from one end of the district to the other. Yeah, okay, so it's decent um, sized. It's yeah. we are you know, suburban mostly, but um, so what what are the two or three messages or the one message if you like that you want p 
people in your district to hear from you that to make them decide to choose you? Well, I would say that, you know, we need to be looking ahead. We have to be a forward-looking um, society. And I think that in our district, we have such a unique opportunity to be a leader in the 21st century economy that, you know, we need someone in office who has a vision for the future and, you know, a plan to to ramp up our educational facilities and to invest in, in those jobs at the federal level and to bring that back home. And so I think, you know, we've got to look for candidates with a vision and we also have to look for candidates who are not afraid to stand up for their principles by making decisions based on facts and evidence. Because you know what? When you've done that, when you make your decision and you've got sound factual basis for it, then when people come up to you and say, why did you make that decision? You can answer them. You can answer them honestly and truthfully. And that's what people deserve. They don't, they don't, no one expects to agree a hundred percent with their representative or with their, even with their, with their candidate, because the only way to agree a hundred percent with someone is to be that person. So unless you're running for office, yeah, you're not going to agree a hundred percent, but you need somebody in office advocating for you uh, and on behalf of your community who at least has the guts to, to tell you why they made the decisions that they did and will listen to you to get your input for next time. And I think that's what's really important. We've got to look for authenticity in our candidates because right now, you know, people run because they want to get into office because they hate their job. They hate their job as a lawyer um, or they think they can, you know, uh, pad out their bank accounts and make a name for themselves and be comfortable there. And I think scientists, I mean, we love what we do. I love what I do. I mean, think about it. Volcanoes versus Congress, right? I mean, it's not really something you have to think about too much. But when you have something um, that is that is so important as the future of our country, uh, the decisions we make about human rights issues, um, social issues, scientific research funding. Um, these are fundamental to us. And so we need people in office who maybe don't want the job, but that is why they should take the job. That's why they should be there, because they understand that they are doing a public service. It's not a resume builder. It's not something that they can just rest on their laurels once they get there. They need to be accountable to people. And, you know, I'm a grassroots candidate. So somebody who donates five bucks has the same amount of uh, weight for me as someone who donates 2,700, the maximum. And I think that's how it should be. I hope scientists across the country, and there are a number of scientists or people connected to science running this year, and I hope they all win and we can get the number of scientists in Congress up to at least a two-digit level. <laughs> that would be great. Oh, that would be so good. But yeah, we have a primary June 5th. So if anyone listening is in California's 25th district, June 5th is the day to vote. And then, of course, in November, November 6th as well.